Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Bill O'Neill is an actor and clown from Los Angeles whom you may recognize most readily from his frequent appearances in commercials as a Wendy's employee. But O'Neill's career goes back to his early teen years when he scored a major speaking role in the 2008 film Drillbit Taylor. A member of LA's burgeoning clown community, he co-starred with his fellow clowns in the 2019 late-night FX series Two Pink Doors. Last year, one of those clowns, Natalie Palomitas, helped direct O'Neill's latest project, The Amazing Banana Brothers, which took the Edinburgh Fringe by storm and earned him a nomination for Best Newcomer of 2023. O'Neill spoke to me over Zoom as he prepared to take the show to New York City for a limited off-Broadway run in March 2024. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! Thank you for joining me, and let me, uh, last things first, apologize. I don't know if you know this or not, but I unintentionally sat in the front row for the Amazing Banana Brothers show in Edinburgh. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) And I I have to stress that it's always inadvertent and unintentional, because as someone who reviews shows, whether they're a clown or stand-up or anything, I really don't want to sit up front. And performers don't want me to sit up front. So it's like, (laughs) when it's an interactive show, it's especially more like, oh, no, what have I done? kind of situation so yeah yeah i mean that that's the splash zone for sure but Did when you... you see but when you do a show like banana brothers or any of your clown work would you see like friends or family up front does that impact does that enter your psyche at all during the show uh knowing that you have to pick people only only in a generous way i Anytime I pick someone, I I always pick a, a stranger just because it's just more exciting for, for me and, and for that person, you know. There there are times where I try to I try to venture off into the deeper deeper rows. Mm-hmm. There was actually a show recently where I was kind of wandering around the front and just kind of not getting the right vibe, you know, of like, who's going to be the lucky contestant. <laughs> and I, um, so I went into the back. I was actually going through a few rows and then I went to the very back and found this guy. And uh, he was great. He was like, he was the guy for the show. And then at the end, he came up to me and he said, um, you know, I went to Edinburgh and I didn't get to see your show, but every show that I went to, I was picked to be like the volunteer. And he said, and I sat in the back this time because <laughs> I thought, I'm not getting picked for this show. <laughs> so what was it about him that stuck out to you? Because there you must know, have been something about this guy. Yeah, well, the thing is, is like when I'm picking someone, I have a blindfold on. And so... It makes it a little difficult to kind of like connect with the person or I'm not really going off of looks. Mm-hmm. You know, I ask, I kind of like sneakily ask for consent. I'm like, are you okay with this? You know, no, if they give me the an enthusiastic yes, then 
they're the person. So he kind of gave me the green light despite, <laughs> you know, whatever his inner madness was telling him. Right, because they don't necessarily know that nipple play might be involved. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Not to spoil too much of the show, but uh, <laughs> but you've done it for a, a, a year or two now at this point. And the reviews are out. People know it's... You're, you're a best newcomer at, at the fringe, so... Oh, well. People know. Nominee. nominee. Yeah, best newcomer <laughs> nominee. Um, <laughs> speaking of newcomer uh, performances, I just watched for the first time Drillbit Taylor. Oh, my <laughs> land. How old were you? Wow, you, you really got... did your research, John. <laughs> <laughs> I have to talk about more than just bananas in this interview. So, yeah, yeah. so let's get into it. Yeah, I was um, I was thirteen years old when 13. I was in Taylor. Yeah, were you a were you a kid actor from birth, or was this a fluky thing where you were discovered in a shopping mall? How uh, does a thirteen year old end up in a major motion picture with Owen Wilson and? I mean, kind of a star studded cast, you know. Right, in retrospect, Danny McBride, the three UCB guys. To answer your question, it was more of a shopping mall situation. I mean, I was, like, as a kid, I was, you know, kind of like a class clown. And I did, like, a couple of plays at my elementary school. And there was a mom there who was an agent. And she said, like, I'm, I'm a... I'm looking like I'm trying to send submit someone to this movie and like I think you'd be good for it. So there was three kids in that movie. There's like three main kids. And I auditioned for all of those parts. And I kind of went through the rounds, you mm-hmm. know. And um at the end at like the fourth audition or something, the director Steve Brill said, um, you know, we don't really think you're right for any of these parts. But we think you're a lot of fun and we're we're gonna like write a little part for you in the movie. <laughs> like, oh wow, that's great. So I just kind of showed up to set and some days they would throw me into scenes, some days they wouldn't. But that's why I have such an ineffectual character in that movie. I mean, I'm just kind of standing well, and like commenting on things that are happening. Yeah, but see that's not ineffectual. You're you provide running commentary throughout. You're like the fourth kid. There's the three kids who get bullied. There's the two bullies. But then you're just there the whole time, not getting bullied. Yeah. It kind of surprises me because you look like you might have been one of the. You look like you could have been one of the three kids who got bullied. So what? Do you, know, so what do you? Yeah. So what do you think your backstory was for how he? how he was surviving ninth grade. You know, I think, um, I think my character, Dean was his name. I don't mm-hmm. think that was ever explicitly. It, no, it's, it's never, no, cause I just watched it. Your character is, is Dean in the credits, but never named <laughs> in the film. You're just sort of there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, my justification was like, these three kids are, outsiders but they're like uh, they're more vulnerable you know they're kind of putting themselves in the spotlight more mm-hmm. i was someone who was not taking as many chances as them i let myself fade into the background ah, you know? okay um 
you know, very emblematic of uh, of my my growing up. I would say <laughs> that that's what your actual high school years are like. Or were high school years different because you were in a in a major motion picture? Did that make you kind of stand out in school? You know, a, a little bit, which was like kind of, which was kind of unexpected. And that was why I sort of very quickly realized, like, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to be, I want to feel like a regular kid. I just want to go to school. I want to like hang out with my friends. I don't really want to have this otherness, this otherness like mentality about me, you know, so that was the only movie I did. And then, yeah, I kind of stepped away from, from acting. <laughs> okay. So were you in California or where were you growing up at this point? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm born and raised in LA. Okay. You so had I, this taste of it and yet you resisted, you resisted the temptation for what? Five years, yeah, 10 I mean, years. Yeah, kind of. I mean, in that period, I was I was doing um I was doing commercial acting. Okay. But yeah, it kind of became something, you know, where cuz my parents when I was growing up, my parents were writers for like soap operas. Oh, okay. And so you are a kid of the business. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. But then, you know, as as I got like a little older, they they weren't really getting work anymore. It's much harder for writers to get work as they get older, especially in TV. You know, it's like they kind of want young, young minds in the writing rooms. And so my parents kind of got like pushed out a little bit. And so it was sort of a thing where like I was, you know, I kind of had to do it as like a way to bring in some bring in some bacon for the family, you know. So. Is that what is that what also then brought you back to it? When um, you were you were when you were like five or ten years older, hitting your yeah. 20s? Well, it was it was something I always wanted to do. I never really wanted to be anything else, but um, I think until I was about twenty, it was just something I didn't ever really take seriously or like. Just something I didn't try for for a long time, you know, it was that kind of standard issue fear of failure, where it was definitely more in my early twenties where I thought like I need to really start trying to do this if it's important to me, you know. What what was it that made you flip that in your head from this is just something I do to well if this is something I do then I better try. Mm. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. It was sort of, it was very. Did you go to, did you go to college and study something else or study acting or? I went to college in San Francisco at San Francisco State. Okay. I didn't, I didn't study acting. I think I took two acting classes while I was there. I went for two years and then I ran out of money from all the like commercials. All that money ran out. Okay. I was well, I guess I'm done with college, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, then I moved back to LA after that. Okay. So was um, it then sort of like a uh, financial desperation, or like, or, or a realization that you have to do something? Yeah, I just realized like this. 
this is the one thing that is really important to me. And if it's going to stay that way, then I, I have to nurture this somehow. So I was taking acting classes and then my sisters were doing improv. And so they invited me to do a team with them. And uh, what theater were they at? They were at, um, they had a coach at Second City. And so we performed at Second City and IO West. Um, and so I did that for a year or so. And then I started taking classes at UCB. How um, how quickly after you showed up at UCB did you tell Matt Besser that you were in Drillbit Taylor? You know, I'd never I've never <laughs> had a run in with Matt Besser. Really? Yeah. Actually, well, that's not quite true because I actually I mean, I, I know did, you weren't in any scenes with him in the movie, so Yeah, but I did do like a B movie with him a few years ago that was called oh. Good Girls Get High. Um and Matt Besser was in that movie. Mm-hmm. So I saw him on set a couple times, but I don't know. I, it was a little hard to approach him, you know. <laughs> He's yeah, kind he, of, he gives off he gives off a, a, a prickly vibe. I, I've, a little I, bit. Yeah, I, I've yeah. known him. I've known him and talked to him over the years. I get it. Yeah, prickly is a good way to put it. <laughs> so then you start taking classes at UCB. Mm-hmm. At, at this point, the UCB is really sort of taking off, and all of these people within mm-hmm. the system are getting cast in sitcoms and movies and commercials. Is that an allure for you where you're thinking, oh, I could I could be a part of this? Yeah, I think I thought like, oh, maybe this is my path. Because I kind of, I like doing improv, but, you know, I wasn't like that great at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I enjoyed doing it. And I thought like, you know, this is a way for me to perform. And so like, this is the thing that, I'm going to try. This is the only thing I'm aware of because it was pretty big at that point. It was kind of very oversaturated. That was sort of before the glass ceiling broke, you know? And uh, so it was kind of hard to get stage time a little bit. It was very competitive. And yeah, I mean, I kind of had a, I had a love hate relationship with it for a few years. Like I would do it for six months and then like I wouldn't do it for five months and then I would try it again you know it was just something that wasn't ever really clicking but I thought this is my only way to perform so I'm gonna try it what did you think what was your opinion or thought about clowning before you saw Dr. Brent I mean it that was something that that wasn't talked about at all when I was doing improv I felt like I, you know, I felt like I took a wrong turn down an alley and opened a door and kind of landed in on it in a way. Um, Because a friend of mine told me about how Dr. Brown was doing a show at the Lyric Hyperion that was called The Incubator. Mm -hmm. And um, I went and saw that. And that show had Natalie Palomitas, Courtney Peroso, uh, Max Baumgard and Ian Bracci, Chad Damiani, Juzo Yoshida. It just blew my mind, you know. That was kind of like my lightning strike moment where I'd never seen any kind of a show like that. I mean, people were just like kind of screaming in the audience and like grabbing each other, you know. And they were just doing things that I'd never seen performers do before. Uh, like really 
pushing the bounds of like what the audience was willing to see. <laughs> right. Well, that's why I asked, did you, before you saw that show, did you think clowning was like the traditional circus clown with the makeup and the red nose and the shoes? Or what did you think clowning was before you saw that? I mean, I knew nothing about it. Yeah, I guess I probably would have assumed it was like the circus circus affair. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had seen, I had seen Natalie Palomita's like maybe once or twice at different shows. Okay. But at that point, I thought like, this is the only person alive that is doing this. Like, this is so. <laughs> I don't even know what you would call that. I, <laughs> clowning wasn't the term that came to my mind. Um, <laughs> and when I went to that show, that was when I started learning more about it and learning that there was kind of like this little scene happening, you know. <laughs> you didn't freak out and go, oh, my God, there's more of them. You went, oh, there's more of them. Maybe yeah, I could yeah, be one yeah. of these people. Yeah, exactly. It just, you know, it it felt like... When I watched that show, I felt like, oh, that's who I am, and that's the type of thing that I want to do, in a way that I, I had never experienced, really, with anything else. So, um, do you go up to them immediately, or do you wait a day or a week before trying to sign up? How Yeah, I think, how quickly did that manifest in terms of taking the action to say, I want to be part of your little club? I think about two weeks later, I well, because I I quickly signed up for Doctor Brown's mailing list, and about two weeks later, he was doing a class. Okay, and uh, that was where I first met Courtney, and um, yeah, I mean, the class just like it really blew my mind, and I had so much fun doing it, and I wanted to do more of it, and then I took another class with him. And then a little shortly after that, he started doing these uh, Dr. Brown Live Directs Monday nights. That was with Courtney, Natalie, all the same people from the incubator. And by this point, I was kind of hanging around the theater a lot and going to shows, you know. And then he at one point invited me to come and do the show um, just because he liked me in the class. And that was what really, like, you know, made my heart explode. (laughs) Because suddenly I was now on stage with all of these people that I admired so much, you know. Yeah. So that was, that I feel like was the biggest opportunity of my life, maybe. And it still blows me away sometimes when I'm, like, performing with them. I'm like, I feel like Mark Wahlberg in a... The rock star. <laughs> okay. So. Well, if that made your heart explode in a Marky Mark uh, rock star kind of way, what then did the two pink doors experience mean for you to be a part of it? Oh, man. Late yeah. night cable, FX, FXX. Yeah. Still available so, on Hulu or YouTube, I think. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many people are knocking on those two pink doors, <laughs> but uh, they certainly exist. Well, it's a series um, of like little vignettes involving this collective of clowns. Yeah. And these two motel doors or motel rooms that are next to each other. Yeah, they were, uh, they're the two, those two doors were owned by Absolutely, 
Um, it was oh, like Tim Heidecker's. Yeah, it was like their. I think it was their first office space that they had, and they were kind of using it for storage at that time. And we saw the doors and thought, like, genius, <laughs> genius tableau. Oh, it writes uh, itself, and and it keeps it low budget too. We don't have to spend uh, yeah. a lot on location costs. Yeah, exactly. And it was they're all one shot. And so that was, that felt the closest to the style that we were working with because, you know, we could kind of do these like long orchestrated sequences that were, you know, pretty tightly choreographed. That, yeah, that was the closest to what our shows were like. So it felt like an easy transition. But yeah, I mean, that was a really fun experience because we would just spend like hours and hours and hours at that space, like kind of performing things for each other and seeing what worked and what didn't. And then, yeah, having like a little money behind it. Cause you know, we were just kind of be improvising scenes, you know, you know, Ian would say something like he would look down and go like, Oh wow, beautiful hardwood floors. And then within like an hour or two, there's people walking in with like, hardwood planks to put down and we're like oh my god the things <laughs> that we're saying actually have <laughs> how does it feel seeing yourself on camera in something like two pink doors or even drill bit taylor when you were a kid versus seeing yourself on camera multiple times a day in a wendy's commercial <laughs> saying singing bad boys bad boys or nicknames for breakfast biscuits oh man yeah i mean it's um it's a whirlwind wow you've really done your homework sean <laughs> really uh, really delving into my my body of work well i mean it's it's uh you know i've slowly one by one uh, captured almost all of the la clown community on this podcast now and i have to say that you know i got to interview natalie before the pandemic so i have more history with her but like the combination of seeing her in progressive insurance ads and seeing you in Wendy's ads and knowing what you're both like in real life on stage, it, it makes me laugh every time. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like another person when I'm doing that a little bit, or like when I see it, it feels like another person in a way. Mm -hmm. There's something, there's something magical about when I put on the Wendy's hat because (laughs) I actually had to go to Ohio to, they wanted me to like shoot TikTok videos for Wendy's. Oh, right. And, Cause they're, ba- they're, they were founded in Columbus. Yeah. Yeah. So we went to like a, an Ohio state game and there's a mm-hmm. hundred thousand people there. And I was walking around this tailgate and like, you know, no one knew who I was, but the second that I put on the Wendy's hat, suddenly like all these faces were turning and going like, Tyler, Tyler from Wendy's. People were just running up to me and screaming things that were on the menu. <laughs> Junior bacon, cheeseburger, chocolate, frosty, fries. <laughs> like, wow, these are some these are some real Wendy's heads out here. That's wild because that's that's not only a gig that gets to pay your rent in Los Angeles, but also magically you put on the hat and you become famous in Ohio. Yeah. yeah, it's like a very Clark Kent thing because the second I take it off, people are just like, 
who's that like gray haired baby face man walking around, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> who's not here to see football. How do you see yourself then in, in this clown community since you joined after most everybody mm-hmm. and you're younger than most everybody? Do you um, feel like you have a special place in that ecosystem? Oh, geez. I don't know. I mean, I think the coolest thing now is to see how much of us, how much it's gotten bigger in LA. Because I think when I joined, at least as far as I was aware of it, because I wasn't aware of like how big the clown scene was in Europe when I started doing it. But in LA at the time, there was maybe like 50 people that were that I was aware of and that were going to the same shows. And like, we all kind of knew each other. And now it's, it's much bigger. I mean, not astronomically, but I think those numbers are closer to like, you know, 200 or more of people that are studying it and trying to do it. And there's people that are a lot younger than me doing it now. So that is a cool thing. I mean, I guess in some way I feel like a part of, I feel a part of like, nurturing that kind of scene and watering it a little bit, which that definitely gives me a little bit of pride. You know, I'm glad to see it it growing more and more. I hope it keeps growing. That's, that's good. So you don't see yourself as like the last one in pull the ladder up behind you. No more clowns. I'm the last one. (laughs) No, no, not at all. I mean, send in the clowns, send in the clowns. I say. So speaking of which, let's bring it on back. To the amazing Banana Brothers. This is your second show? There's video evidence of an earlier one. The baby goes to factory. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you learn? So what did you learn from that show that helped you turn Banana Brothers into something different and better and bigger? Oh, okay. That's a good question. So Baby Goes to Factory, um for for our listeners who are not aware of this, <laughs> that was a, a one-man musical that I made with um, my friend Greg DiMartino, who's a musician, great musician, has a band called Tino Dreama. And um, we wrote those songs. I mean, Greg, like, wrote most of the songs. I'm not much of a musician. I just wrote, like, lyrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that happened around the time that I was first taking clown classes. Okay. So some of what I was learning was going into that show, but I was still like just so green and stupid. Like I didn't really know how to work on bits or, you know, I didn't really have that much experience like playing off of the audience, you know? Um, so that show was, uh, <laughs> it holds a special place in my heart. I think about the songs very often, but I didn't know how to make that show better than what it was. Like, I couldn't improve it very much. It was sort of like I came up with the show, and then I would perform it every so often. Um, But I didn't know how to improve it. And um, so I didn't do a a solo show for quite a while until I had the the seed of the idea for Banana Brothers. And... um, at that, a few months after working on that is when I invited Natalie to be the director. And 
because I knew like I need an outside eye and I need someone pushing me and there's no one I trust but her. So at what point is it to, to kind of mutate and grow from just the slapstick of slipping and falling on banana peels to a sibling rivalry that's also a kind of metatextual discussion on masculinity and fame and celebrity. Oh, geez. Um, and, and, and sadomasochism, I guess yeah. also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, again, those, those additions were very incremental. I, I think it was about five months of slapstick falling. You know, I think of that as kind of like the Maria Abramovic period where I was having these like workshop shows and people would show up and I was just falling on the floor in different ways. <laughs> and some of them were like, I would kind of connect some of them and I would do callbacks to certain things, but there was no storyline. And then eventually, you know, once I was like very injured, I would be like, okay, well the show's over now. <laughs> and then, so there was about five months of that maybe. <laughs> then I invited, I, you know, asked Natalie to be the director. Mm-hmm. She said, like, you know, I work with a story when I do shows. Do you want to do a story with this? And I said, yes, I do. And so we did a few workshop shows where she was kind of live directing. And she would just call out things and be like, uh, try, like, let's try a new entrance or try to give us a premise for why we're here, you know. And I'm pretty sure out of that, during one of those nights, this idea of a brother was introduced and yeah we very slowly over like a year just kind of worked on that like who is this brother and what is this relationship like why does why do these guys slip on bananas you know just kind of asking the why question over and over again <laughs> kind of filled in those those shades I guess that are in the show now what did she also do in terms of helping you prepare for just the briggers of the fringe in Edinburgh. She, she knows how it goes there. She knows how to win awards there. Yeah. But a lot of people go there and they're like, Oh my God, I'm doing this for 30 days in a row competing with 4,000 other shows. Yeah. That was kind of like the main reason I wanted to go. I wanted to go for years and I had tried to go with baby goes to factory a couple of times and it didn't work out. And then you know, the pandemic happened. And so like, I wasn't trying for a couple of years, but that was always the most interesting part of like doing a show that many times in a row and how my body and mind could sustain and kind of the idea of like being so aware of every moment of the show from doing it that much in succession and being able to be that precise about everything that you're doing. Cause like you do a couple shows and then take, you know, a month or two off and you do a couple shows again. And it's like, you feel rusty and you're like, oh, I can't really remember what's next when you're doing it 30 nights in a row. It's like, you're hyper aware of every like head turn and, you know, like wrist flourish that you're doing. And so that was the coolest part for me. And, and that was something that she kind of like, prepped me for or made me aware of was like 
look, we're going to work on this as much as possible before Edinburgh. But once you get there, don't think the show is done. Like you're going there to work on the show. That's what it's for. You know, you don't have to have a finished product. And so that, and that felt like kind of a freeing realization for me once I got there. I didn't feel like, oh, I have to like now present myself on this stage. It was like, all right, we're just here to work, you know? Sure. But the other thing about doing it, a show like yours for a month straight is you have to take extra special care of your body. Yeah. Because one false move and you're like, how am I supposed to go for the next two weeks of this? But then you also have to care and manage for God knows how many banana peels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are you having to go to Tesco every other day or? No, fortunately, because it was because Soho Theater produced it and we I had a stage manager who got we had like a bananas banana delivery service and Naomi Shanson my stage manager was actually peeling the bananas that was the thing that felt the most like luxurious was after a year of peeling the bananas seeing seeing like a box of peeled bananas before the show every night was like oh my god what kind of life am I living you know what's the lifespan Um, of a banana peel are they good for just one show or do you get a week's work yeah. Every show is new banana peels? Yeah, it's 80, 80 bananas a night, yeah. A budget on that. I know, yeah. They're much cheaper here in L.A. I can go to Trader Joe's and get a box of 200 for, I think, <laughs> $30 maybe. Okay. Um, but, yeah, they're a little more expensive uh, in Europe. Um, <laughs> Such an yeah. original prop, and yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely had to take care of my body. I, I was stretching a lot throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as you can prepare, definitely bad things happen. I, I developed this thing with my shoulders where my shoulders were dislocating, which I don't really know how that happened. Somewhere in the form of doing these slips, my shoulders started popping out. And that was happening a lot in the months leading up to Edinburgh. So that was something that I was worried about. I was like, oh my God. how is this going to happen every night? You know, <laughs> but I, I was very vigilant of that and did shoulder exercises every day. But there was a couple times during shows where it would slip out and I would kind of be writhing on the floor, just trying to pop it back in. Well, that's where audience interaction comes in handy, I guess. That's true. Yeah. Are there any doctors in the building? You can get someone to snap it back in for you. Yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't realize just how much you put yourself through for that. So, okay, so now you're you're bringing it to New York for a limited two-night run. I know mm. Courtney just uh, put her show to tape last weekend. What are your thoughts for where you want to take the Banana Brothers? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I would love to do a longer run in New York. So hopefully, hopefully these two shows coming up might just build a little bit of interest. I've never performed in New York before, so I'm very excited to see how that goes. But yeah, I I would love to do a longer run there. And I don't know. I mean, I still really enjoy doing the show. Like I really love every second of it. 
And that was something Natalie helped me sculpt. She was like, if you're going to do this this many times, you need to look forward to every minute of the show. If there's any part that you're doing that you're just getting through, then we have to cut it, you know? And now I do feel like I'm at that point where I, for each section, I feel like, oh, I can't wait to like do this part. I can't <laughs> wait to show them this, you know? And so as long as that feeling sustains, then I think the show has a life. If it gets to a point where I'm like, oh, here we go again, then it's like, okay, it's time to move on. Well, Bill O'Neill, I'm 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 grateful that you're still happy and thriving, even though you're sp- sprawling all over the place on banana peels. And I'm yet I'm somehow sad that I never got a chance to see that original version where it's just you slipping on banana peels. Until the crowd goes, what? I know, yeah. I mean that that was an interesting show. I have to, I have to admit. Maybe that has a life somewhere. You know, I'll do that. Maybe I'll perform that on the street someday and just see. Well, well, I look forward to that. Uh, Thank you so much, Phil. I really appreciate this. Oh, thank you, Sean. Yeah, this was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.